I'm very relaxed, as you can tell. I'm stretching. Uh, welcome, everyone. Uh, this episode is going to be centering around Anzac Day of Remembrance Day. And, and for this particular episode, we have a, well, the man with the knowledge. Um, he is a senior lecturer um, at university, Dr. Professor Romani Fathi. Doctor or senior Doctor. lecturer, whatever. Romain is good. Or Romain if you speak French. So, I mean, this is the big one. Um, <laughs> This is the this is the really interesting part here. Now, um, wh- what is it that got you interested in uh, writing um, our corner of the Somme? Um, I know you're being French, um, but dispelling some of the myths, I I started reading and I thought, oh, this is going to get interesting. And then it was completely different narrative than I thought. I was like, and I couldn't put it down. So yeah, what's the backstory? Oh, man, that's that's a very personal story, but I'll, I'll tell it nonetheless. So um, when I was 20, a fair while ago, um, as part of my studies in France, I had to go overseas for a year. And I thought, you know, where the furthest place on earth that I can go from my parents, which I love, who I love dearly, right? But I just, you know, you're 20, you just want to go far and wide. So I put down Canada, New Zealand, South Africa, and I got to Australia. And uh, I really loved it. Uh, during the two semesters break, I, I bought a little four-wheel drive and drove all around Australia, the entire island, and then crossed it. I had a fantastic time in Australia. And I remember being in the desert, in the Nullarbor, somewhere out of Whoop Whoop. And, um, and I get to see that, well, what used to be a village a long, long time ago, and I see that obelisk, that memorial. And, you know, as someone interested in history, I just... Read and he said, Oh, you know, for the for king and country, um, World War One, 1914, 1918. And at the time, I thought, Oh, that's great, they're thinking about us, you know, because I, I didn't really know that Australia had fought in the First World War, um, because it's not taught in my curricula in France. So here I am in the Nullarbor, cross the country, get to Canberra, and visit the Australian War Memorial. And that's when I found out that, yes, Australians indeed contributed to the First World War and that, in fact, it was central to the national narrative in Australia. And I remember being completely taken aback by the way the First World War was presented at the War Memorial because it's not about the First World War. It's about Australians in the First World War. And it starts with Gallipoli, which is a very, very minor battle uh, for the French who, by the way, lost more soldiers at Gallipoli than Australians. But, of course, for us, the big deal was the Western Front because, well, someone was trying to invade. And and I thought, wow, this is so interesting. You know, here is one historical fact, the First World War, and yet I find myself confronted with a totally different understanding and interpretation of the war. Now, I'm not saying one is right and one is wrong, not at all but it's related to the way we construct, whether it's we the French or we Australians or we Russians, the way we think about the past. So as I said, you know, there is one past, one common experience, but yet 100 years later, you fast forward and you've got a completely different understanding of what happened. And that fascinated me. And as I went through my studies, I did a master's and then I did a PhD and I thought, 
you know what, this is what I want to look at. How come Australians and the French who were on the same side, on the ally, have such a different understanding of the First World War? What does it say about the French? What does it say about the Australians? And so, yeah, that's how I came to write that book. Um, mate, you hit on about uh, the last three really good points. Uh, we, and I want to sort of really get into it, and you're the man to talk to about. Um, constructing a nation, and and obviously Australia was just federated 1901, um, so they're sort of, you know, churching up a few things about how, you know, how much of an influence they had in in. Villas Breton, not that's the English pronunciation, right? Not the not the French. Um, and then we talk about how these different countries, um, and I suppose, and look, I think it's always been the way we're coming out of that imperial English officers, redcoats, you know, and they're, they're all really just trying to vie for power. They might be exacerbating some of the or exaggerating some of the stories of of their involvement and downplaying other nations. So, um, yeah, can you take us through that nation building that, that Australia was doing at the time and, and and how we sort of base our identity off that? Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a really good question. And, you know, to put it in very simple ways, the nation state is the framework within which we operate today. That wasn't the case 300 years ago. That wasn't the case a 1,000 years ago. And, you know, I'm a historian. I only talk about the past, but I can probably foresee that at some stage, will operate under a different regime. Now, in order to have a nation state, you go to IKEA and you buy a flag, you buy an anthem, you buy a common history, you may put a common language, you may put a common people, you may put a common religion, but essentially you've got a few key ingredients to be a real nation state, right? And if you don't follow that recipe, you know, you're not with the big boys, you're not a real nation state. So for Australia, just like for any other country that was building itself at the time, well, it, it's difficult to say you had one people because, as we know, that's, that's a myth, right? Like Indigenous Australians have been there for at least 60,000 years. But at the time in 1901, the, the parliament that is federating itself is essentially a white British parliament where Australia comes from being a set of colonies to being its own nation with one parliament. And these people were highly aware that they needed Australian symbols. And a, a, an Australian historian, Ken English, has documented that when Australia sent troops to Sudan in 1875, and that wasn't Australia, that was only the colony of New South Wales, uh, the New South Wales Parliament was really keen to create statues and memorials and at the parliament, some gentlemen said, well, you know, only six or something like that people died on the trip out of disease. They actually didn't really fight. It's a bit too early for Australia to have its own heroes. And the point of that story is to tell you that already in 1875, people in Australia are thinking about the national narrative they want to build. Like, we need to have heroes, people that can be aspirational for others. And so as time passes, Australians are more and more keen to get these heroes. Now, you've got the Bushman hero of the um, South African War, um, you know, that idea of, of Larry King, of Bushman, but that doesn't encapsulate um, 
the nation in a way, and, and also very far fewer people enlisted to go to South Africa. So when the First World War arrived, this was experienced as, guys, we are making history, right? So it's not, it's not something that came after. It's something that these people knew were doing at the time. They knew they were making history. So the expectations were strong. And I can tell you that Gallipoli, whether it would be a victory or a defeat, that didn't matter. What mattered was the fact that Australian manhood had landed, right? So the idea that, yes, finally, we are contributing as a nation or what was thought to be a nation. Remember, at the time, it's white Australia. Indigenous soldiers, until much further down the track in the war, were not legally um, entitled to um, enlist in 1914, 15, 16. They have to wait a bit longer. Uh, so there is that real idea that we're making history, we're part of it, we are part of a world war. And this is how we become an independent country that has something to contribute to the great concert of nation. Of course, that's the idea that Australians are making of themselves. But for the rest of the world, it's, well, Australia, the Australian Imperial Force is part of the British Army. So to this day, I remember years ago when I started to work on, on Australians, I wanted to document how Australian soldiers and French soldiers got along on the front, right? Like what kind of relationship they had. And I talked to that senior historian, um, Elizabeth Greenhalgh at UNSW Atfel, and she told me, look, you're going to waste your time because in French archives, the way to describe Australians is English or British. The French don't really understand, and, and you know, apology for my national, uh, for my um, fellow countrymen, but uh, you guys understand British as something made up of the Scottish, the Welsh, the English. The French tend to say English for about everything, even though English is just England, right? But yep. we say les Anglais for, for all groups. Therefore, Australians were included into this. And it's no surprise, like, I think 20 to 25% of the Australian Imperial Force were born and bred in Britain and then had relocated to Australia. So today we think of Australia, but at the time they fought for empire. They knew they were Australian. So these people were primarily from a state. They were from Queensland or they were from South Australia or from Victoria. They identified as these three allegiances, state, nation, Australia, and the empire. Today, we, you know, we commemorate Anzac in a very different way, but at the time, the soldiers of the IAF really thought of themselves as part of the British empire. They fought for the British empire and they had no problem with that. So it's all part of that nation building whether, whereby you showcase to the world that your manhood is fighting because at the time it is expected that to be a real nation, you've got to shed blood. Now we can think Whatever, whatever we want about it, but that's the framework within which these people thought at the time. So you have to contribute to the First World War, but you also see yourself as fighting for the British Empire. And that is a national narrative. Essentially, Australians are Australians, but they are better Britishers. They are better soldiers. They are whiter than the British themselves because they've closed the borders. So the entire narrative that is being built at the time is Australia's national identity is Britain in better. 
right? Yeah. And, and that has currency for many decades after the war. Better soldiers, stronger, taller, but, but all of that is not true. Like if you, if you look at the size, like physical size of these soldiers and you compare them, that, that doesn't really stand the test of historical reality. But historical reality doesn't matter except for historians, really. What people felt was happening as its own currency, its own life. And this is a process I'm interested about. The memory, the building of something. Why do we do this? Yeah, I think, um, they, I mean, they talk about, especially when I was joining the army, like, yeah, the Australian soldiers were, you know, always revered for being taller and stronger and could ride a horse and could, you know, they were better soldiers than the English and and that sort of, I mean, it was just wives tales going through and through with no actual factual information behind it. Exactly. I mean, a very important point that you've made is about the horses. Like Australia had no cavalry, right? Like Australia had mounted infantry, that is, group of infantry troops, mountain and horses in order to get to a place quick dismount and fight. Cavalry training takes years. The British Army, the French Army, Germans had cavalry, which of course served little purpose in First World War. But we identify ourselves as like really good horsemen. But in fact, at the time, Australia had no training for cavalry. There was no cavalry. But because the, the, the image of the horse is so important in warfare at the time, of course we had to have it, right? So, again, that's one of these times where, um, sorry, I think there are a few students in the university having a good that's time okay. making noise. Yeah. Uh, come to Flinders University. You'll get a great education and a group of mates you can uh, uh, have fun <laughs> with. Uh, but, yes, like we've, we've, um, we've woven a lot of things we want to say about ourselves into the past. And, again, doesn't really matter. Well, it does matter that it's not true. But to me, what's more important is is why it is that we want to do this. So, I've got just just to rewind a couple of seconds. You you basically said that when World War One kicks off, Australia before Australia gets involved, either generals or politicians or someone at the top of the pyramid has written the Anzac legend, regardless of what happens at Gallipoli. So, in short. This is the first Australian conspiracy theory. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Look, I'm not, I'm not saying it's a conspiracy theory. What I'm saying is there were expectations. So, of course, we didn't know where the landing was going to happen. Remember, these men are, are, are boarding in Australia because they think they're going to fight the real game on the Western Front. And they are sent to Cairo for training in Egypt and then off to, off to Gallipoli. Before that, there was no relationship between the Ottoman Empire and Turkey. So imagine, like, you're an Australian in Sydney, you board, you go for a month at sea, and your general will say, uh, well, sorry, mate, uh, we're going to go to Egypt, and then you're going to fight people you've never heard about. It's not the Germans, it's the Ottoman. And you go, what? So the, the, what I'm saying is that there was an expectation that wherever Australians would be deployed, they would do well for the simple fact that it was the first time that they were fighting as a nation, as a federated nation, which happened in 1901, we're in 1914. So whatever was going to happen was going to be a great success. There was not going to be, oh, they've landed and it served no purpose and they were shot and no, 
They landed heroically and they all got together and pushed the tax. And of course, you need this for recruitment purposes. Remember, like, it's, it's not conscription. It's volunteering. And, and as people who serve, you well know that if I came forward as a general and said, hey, look, come and get killed against people we've never heard of before in a places where you can't put on a map and you'll end up your face in the mud, you're not going to join it. But if I make you join as part of a great heroic narrative um, where you're going to travel, see guns, have fun, get a good pay, you know, there's that propaganda dimension. So, of course, for recruiting purposes and for national myth-making, whatever was going to happen would be a success. Uh, and then maybe sack Cairo along the way because the whole prices were too high. Is that factually true? Um Look, there were, uh, um, yes, there were, there were issues with Australian troops in Cairo relating to brothels. So <laughs> um, there was, uh, I think it's called the Waza Riots, whereby some Australians, um, uh, yeah, look, I won't get into this. It's been documented <laughs> yes. by the historiography. But again, like you can't, you, you can't put every man in the same basket. As, as you know, when people are deployed, they react in many different ways. Uh, some do really well, others not so well, but that's any group, any human society, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, talking about the, um, that polit- this is something that I sort of come into earlier on in my career, figuring out that, you know, I thought that the army was separate to politics and now I know absolutely not. Uh, war is politics. It is a, it is one of the instruments that politicians use to affect their agenda. And and a bit of me that sort of, as I sort of dug into it, found out that really, I mean, Germany was going to invade France. Um, the whole thing about Belgium was a little bit of a misdemeanor. Britain just sort of jumped in because they didn't want Germany to be this massive superpower and control all of Eastern, uh, Western Europe. So they didn't really have a, a – there wasn't it wasn't like a an emotional reason to get in. They just had to fabricate one and say, hey, actually, we just don't want the Germans to get a leg up. Is that pretty accurate? So, um, yes, it is. But we have to add that um, at the time, Australia is nearly entirely dependent on trade with Britain. So if Britain goes down, you go down. There is no doubt about that. If the Germans or the Ottoman – take the Suez Canal, you're going to starve, essentially. Or Britain is going to starve and you're not going to get the capital that you need to develop your economy. So at the time where, you know, today you would think, hey, why am I going to fight somebody's health war? In 1914, Australians know that it is their war because that could affect them directly at home if if she did the fan and if Germany takes over. But indeed, for Britain, it was all about the balance of power. We don't want a France that is too strong or we don't want a Germany that is too strong. And Germany's imperial pretension were threatening that equilibrium, so to speak. So, you know, it made sense for from their perspective at the time, it made absolute sense for Australia to get involved in the First World War. And in fact, when the First World War is declared by the the king of Great Britain and the British Empire, Australia joins in because there is enormous popular support. So Australians really saw themselves as 
well, yes, this is happening in Europe, but that could have real trade, economic, demographic consequences on us. So we need to actually go and fight that war. Bloody politicians. <laughs> no, it's the way it is, isn't it? Well, um, you know, yeah. like uh, war, I think Clausewitz, um, uh, uh, a military uh, writer and, and philosopher, said that war is the continuation of diplomacy and politics through other means. If you can't get your way through agreements, through talks, war is the next step in getting to enforce what it is that you want. The issue is that often um, when we engage in warfare, we have general ideas of what we want, but we screw up in the implementation phase, right? It's, it's all well and good to go to Afghanistan, but that what it is that you do, right? So, and that, that you know, I'm using Afghanistan, but that could be the same for Vietnam. Um, in, in, there are many other cases, right? So when you talk about ANZAC, you also have to think about war in general in Australian society. When we commemorate ANZAC, it's not only about the First World War. It's about every Australian man and woman who served. And, and the way we think of ANZAC is very politically loaded. You know, they, they, I think that's part of the issue is the commemoration that we have. I'd like to see more veterans at the front of the commemoration telling it like it is, rather than the centre stage being taken up by politicians. Left or right, by the way, I'm not saying this comes from a specific party. What I'm saying is that you've got people who come, make their show, and try to create a narrative that is often distant to the reality of warfare. And that is that is problematic. Yeah, um, I mean, this is something that as, as we get into... What Swiss Eight was trying to do, so we're, we're trying to take Swiss Eight as a barbecue to remember as something to reinvigorate and, I mean, Remembrance Day is largely getting forgotten and this is what led us to your particular chapter and, and article. Um, and what Swiss Eight is doing, trying to effectively rebrand the Australian digger as not the, currently what's perpetrated in the political sense is that they're all broken dysfunctional soldiers, Swiss Aid's trying to change that perspective and say, hey, look, then we're not, we're absolutely not. And, and um, I guess that's the same thing that happened in sort of 1918 when, when they didn't have burials. It was the body, the burial, the grave. I think you said in the book about 200,000 or 60,000 soldiers couldn't come home. And I suppose in that time, 1918 onwards, you, burials and, and services with the body, everything's extremely Christian or Catholic, extremely important. So the localised memorials were about mourning and grief, but the, the larger ones and the national were about um, hero, like heroic deeds and valour and, and sacrifice. So um, it's interesting. I mean, effectively what I'm saying is the Australian government's used this as a political propaganda from the start, right? Yeah, absolutely. Right right from, you know, 1914, really. I think that's a key point. Like, here I'm not going to talk as a historian, but but just as a, you know, a citizen or just a person, right? 
I much prefer going to local Anzac Days or Remembrance Day because people think. They think about people they knew. They think about people that have been engaged. They think about those who have been deployed. The bigger the service, the more fuss and the more nonsense. They're all heroes. They, you know, all these, all this language that is mythology but relates to actually nobody. And one of the issues that veterans from today, from 50 years, from 100 years ago, have suffered from is the unrealistic expectation of the Anzac hero and realities of the battlefield. What we communicate about, what the bigger national narrative is about, is you've got to be strong, resilient, mateship, you are tall, you are bronze, you are all of these things, which clearly is like, you know, even Superman can't, can't compete. The reality is very different. And so to me, this reality is often more commemorated at local level than at national level. And, and, and that is something that to me is quite difficult because the Australian public at large is being sold that idea of, you know, Anzac hero, which is very isolating for soldiers, veterans and their families because whenever you start, you know, having just a normal hurdle, you think, I'm not standing up to that legend. But that legend is fake. It's, it's politically motivated. Again, liberal or labor, I'll make no distinction here, that's part of a national narrative. It's, it's bigger than itself. So that's why I tend to stay away from the big hoo of, you know, the war memorial or the national memorial because they tell stories that are not related to the experience of the soldiers. But if you go to an Anzac Day in an army barracks, the mood is different. It's not about celebration. It's not about jingoism. It's not about nationalism. It's about, you know, remembering JC and John and Jack who it's, it's a very different setup. And I think this is why personally... I think it's more relevant to our veterans taking charge of commemoration rather than state or federal organisations, which, of course, have their role, they have their story to tell. But for me, the first voice should be the one of those who have experienced what they've experienced. Uh, yeah, I think Bob Hawke, 1990 resurgence at Gallipoli, um, when, he, when he put on the tears, whether that was, you know, it says in the, you said in the book whether that was you know, real or not, but uh, yeah, I mean, he said, what is it? Uh, it's up to the, uh, you know, people to remember it how they can, if I'm paraphrasing horribly. Yeah, I think what he wanted to do was to make sure that Anzac would be remembered by the next generation of Australians. And it's it's a critical time in history because Bob Hoke is Prime Minister in the 80s. And in the 80s, there are a lot of debates about you know, who Australians are. Uh, it's the time of reconciliation. It's the time of Indigenous protest. And it's a time of the bicentenary. And ANZAC comes in quite conveniently in that commemorative era. But also it's the last ANZACs, right? Like these, these soldiers are in their late 80s, 
early 90s, late 90s, and they're going to go. For as long as they are as they are there, they master the narrative. When they disappear, politicians can say what they want. And I'll give you that example. The last Anzac, uh, his name was Alec Campbell, and he was a diehard socialist, anti-war. He thought that so many lives had been wasted for nothing. He was offered a national ceremony and he said, no, I'm not having that. Well, when he died, John Howard made sure that he did because the Anzac narrative was bigger than one person. It was for the nation. And John Howard had good reason for it, but it's fairly disrespectful to that guy's last, you know, wish not to be remembered in this way. Because for him, the legend didn't represent him and his mates. So it's always that tension. Local experience, real life experience, and what we want to commemorate and what we want to remember. Yeah, um, I'll throw to Adrian in a second. He'll probably be able to word this better. So we're having problem. So we're a young um, ESO, um, veteran ESO. We're trying to... With some of the we've got in trouble before with some of the words we've used around commemorating, commiserating, celebrating, and and you see some of the, the older veterans are like, no, no, you have to you have to be somber and quiet reflection. I'm like, of course, in the protocols, but as we try to reinvigorate the day, younger veterans, the ones alive now, not the 70, 80 year old dudes, um, have their own particular ways of doing it um uh, what's your thoughts on on that and my that's fascinating because as, as a historian i can tell you that what your generation is experiencing vis-a-vis the vietnam veteran generation the 60 70 you're talking about is what the vietnam veterans experience vis-a-vis the world war ii veterans which is exactly what the world war ii veterans experience vis-a-vis the world war one veterans So within the RSL, uh, up until 1939, of course, it's World War I, right? But then there is World War II that happened. And in 46, 47, 48, you've got much younger men marching. And the veterans from the previous war are like, hang on, we are the heroes and we are doing things this way. So essentially, World War II veterans had to wait until the World War I veterans died in order to impose their own way of doing things. And now that is disappearing because these people with age are dying and the Vietnam veterans are the ones who are revered because they are old. So I'm afraid to say that if the same recipe is followed, people who fought in Iraq and Afghanistan will have to wait, you know, another 20, 30 years to be at the top of the commemorative food chain. Yeah. <laughs> um, But that's a generational thing. I think there is nothing you can do because it's very entrenched. These experiences are group experiences. And the experience of the First World War was different to the experience of World War II, was different to Korea, was different to Vietnam, which is a jungle warfare. Uh, Again, they're different to uh, Iraq, a bit more conventional, but certainly Afghanistan has nothing to do in terms of operation as a classic, you know, a frontline war like the First World War. So the, the experience being different, then people have a different understanding of what they owed to celebrate and what was important. But, but that, 
you know, you were spot on the money here. That is something that has been going on in any army for many, many years. Mate, I, um, I posted a, or I shared a quote the other day. I'd have to go through social media to see who it came from. But it says, we learn from history that we do not learn from history. And I was like, that, that is relevant in almost every aspect of history. But for what we're working through at the moment, that was... Um, it, it was relevant to me and, and what we're getting a lot, we are getting a lot of pushback from the older Vietnam era and older, not all, obviously, not all, um, about trying to organise um, events on Remembrance Day that bring young veterans together. I mean, our, our angle is that no one, no veteran should spend Remembrance Day alone. It's, it's, it's a pretty toxic thing to do. Um, and then the older boys are, are saying, no, this is a day of sombre, quiet reflection. And, and that's when we started digging through history books and obviously came across your papers, um, which, thank you, you did all the hard work for us. Once we found your paper, we didn't have to do any more research because <laughs> you kind of had all the resources in there. But that's, I mean, that, that's sort of like was every generation, war, every war is different, agreed, but the concept for a 20-year-old man who's, who's figuring out who they are in life, the propaganda machine is always the same. It's It's... Yeah. It, it teaches, I mean, as, as far as I know anyway, the propaganda they used in, in 1914 to get Australians to go and fight through to the 40s, um, through all of the wars, through the 60s, 70s, 80s, it's always the same. And they're, they're plugging into I, the identity crisis or the, the, the psyche of a young man who doesn't know who he is, who needs, who wants to prove himself, and then you go to war. But what i found is, is the majority of veterans that I speak to firsthand don't agree with going to fight wars once they turn 40, 50, or, or they leave, leave the military. And I was like, they don't they don't write about that in history books. And that for me was the first time that I started looking at it going, how much of history can we actually believe? And when I, when I do start reading through your stuff, I mean, history is written by the winner um, or it's written by the, the, the officer who returned with the most fanciful story. And all of these guys who are giving pushback about what we want to do on Remembrance Day they're doing so because it negatively impacts their personal identity of what they think the Australian values are and what they think the Australian culture is around Anzac Day and Remembrance Day. So, I mean, this isn't a question. It's just me going waffling on for a point, but I think that's something that everyone needs to be conscious of is the fact that even if you are taught it in school, that doesn't mean it's accurate. Even if you read it in a book, that doesn't mean it's accurate. Like history is a, a, a tough one to crack. Um, and I guess if there is a question, is, is is there more prominent examples of where things that we are taught in school are so far from the truth? Oh, God, you're going to get me into trouble here. Look, I think the key objective is in history is to think critically. And, of course, that's exactly what any normal army does not want you to do for very good reasons. In action on the battlefield, you do not want soldiers to think. You want them to obey the drill. The entire training that soldiers get is about getting automatic responses that could save their lives, right? So there are very good reasons for it. But the army works within its own system of values and training, where their history has, has completely different purposes, right? I'm not Again, I'm not saying one is right and one is wrong. They simply answer to different logics. And you made a very key point. You don't send men... My granddad who fought um, for France in the War of Algeria and his 
father fought in World War Two and in World War One, and my great grandfather. I mean, we we go way back. My granddad used to say to me, "You don't send men to war at forty; you send them at twenty, for, for exactly the point that you've 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 highlighted." Um, but critical thinking to me is the key point, and learning about history. And by history, I will limit that to academic history as opposed to, you know, random books you pick up at the airport which are about myth-making because they sell well, because they are bought by the public who want to read about these heroic deeds, not by the veterans who actually know the reality of warfare on the ground. So there is always a gap between, and as you know that as a veteran, there is a gap between the soldiering experience and people's representation of what serving means. And you made another key point with regard to these older generation thinking about Remembrance Day as somber and quiet reflection. In their defence, you've got to think of the casualty rate. Today, um, you know, I mean, the fatality, the death in Iraq and Afghanistan are terrible for Australian families. There is no doubt about this. But look at the numbers. 60,000 Australians did not return from World War I. You can't organise Remembrance Day in the same way because of this. Because, yes, Australia was on the winning side, but if you are a father, a mother, a daughter, a son, and your father or brother or husband does not come back, it's very hard to have a fun, relaxed, celebratory day. So for these generation, and I think this is true up until Vietnam where you, you add significant losses, today things can be different. Of course, sadly, Australian servicemen and women die on the battlefield. There are also those who die at home taking their own lives. But overall, the casualty and fatality, fatality rate are very different. And so this is why when you guys arrive and say, hey, we've got a new way of doing things to engage people, to celebrate what it is that we do, to celebrate community, to celebrate service, you've got the old guard going, hang on, it's not about celebration. It's about thinking very hard about those who haven't come back. So today our armies are very good at saving the lives of soldiers. We've got much better medical facilities and the way we fight, as you know, is very different. You know, we're not sending a division of 20,000 men on a line with weaponry at the back and the men at the front. We're sending drones, we're sending aircraft, we're sending tanks, and then, if needs be, we're sending boots on the ground. So a, a different type of warfare is bound to create a different understanding of what it is that we commemorate and or celebrate, if that makes sense. How was it like uh, after, so what? So the first Remembrance Day after the victory in World War I, was it, was it a solemn thing or was it quite, and then, I mean, I, I did see in, in your paper that there was almost protests on Remembrance Day and those against the war. Yeah, so initially the first Remembrance Day, uh, the King of Great Britain declares that they should be, that they shall be, in fact, two minutes of silence across the empire on the 11th day, sorry, the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, Remembrance Day. 
So the very format of the commemoration is about silence and thinking about those who haven't returned. Uh, the French do the same. It's only one minute of silence, but there are many countries where you've got that minute of silence. And the point is to bow your head and acknowledge the sacrifice of those who have fought, but also those who have died. It, it can't be joyous if 10 million people die out of the First World War. 10 million soldiers and 6 million civilians died. It's very hard to throw a party and celebrate. So the first Remembrance Day is, in fact, the day of the armistice. And people are thinking, drinking, chanting, because finally the war is over. And 12 months later, when they celebrate that very same date, everybody is quiet, somber, because it's not about the war is over. Now it's about paying the cost of war. The people who are maimed, the people who are not returned, the orphans, the domestic violence. So the mood really changes. And it stays the same for several years. And then in the 30s, you start seeing veterans who actually protest against, against any form of war. Because remember, the First World War was supposed to be the war to end all wars. And they start coming out to say, well, this was a lie. Look, there is another war looming in, in, uh, in Europe. Um, we need to think about whether there is a point in conflict or whether conflict can only bring devastation. And so you've got really big pacifist movement in Belgium, France, the UK, even in Australia. And the pacifist movements are often led by veterans because they are the one who actually know what fighting means and the cost of that fighting. And often they are the one who prefer diplomatic solutions because they know that fighting on the ground is going to be a lot more costly. Sorry, I was just unmuting. So is that um, common? I mean, I, I do want to come back to a, a few more questions on Remembrance Day, but is it common that as time progresses, different the ways we remember th changes and, and the angle that we approach different uh, times or eras through history can change as we, I mean, the, using Remembrance Day as the example, that was in the space of 10 to 15 years, the, the way a day was uh, celebrated versus commiserated, commemorated or, or remembered changed in the space of the first 15 years. And now we've seen it change again over, over time. Is As we, we're at the point now where there's, I'm not sure about uh, around the world, but there's no more World War One veterans left. If if there is, there, there's very few. Um, we get to the point where kids are two generations removed from anyone who fought in those wars. Our understanding is going to be left to what is written in history books and the way the propaganda machine operates. But is that a natural thing for for our memory to and, and the way we we look at different events through history to change as we are further and further removed? Absolutely. I mean, the very fact that we say we shall remember them and never forget, we wouldn't say never forget if we wouldn't forget them, would we? Right. <laughs> so within commemoration, you've got the roots of forgetting and time passing by, and every generation reinvents its past. 
So the past doesn't change, but the way we think about all past or what is important within that past evolve with time. Um, you know, I've been invited by veterans who are in the 70s, 80s, 90s to RSL clubs where <clears throat> before I get to talk, you got to stand and cheer to Her Majesty the Queen. I doubt that veterans who are 20, 30, and 40 would cheer to the Queen, right? Because, well, they don't really identify her as Australian. So the way they understand the service is different to the way newer generation understand the service. Therefore, commemoration will change. But there will still be the same narrative of we will never forget all these sort of things. Of course, because this is something you need to tell to those who are actually serving. It is very comforting, I suppose, to know that if you die in action, in active service, whether it's in Australia or the US or France, you will get a remembrance service. You will be shipped back to your country. Every possible effort will be made to get you back. That wasn't possible when you had 60,000 dead during the First World War. But commemoration, it's not only about politics, it does serve a very intimate purpose of having that energy and that confidence to go out and do the job because you know that your service is being respected. So, you know, we can, yes, there is a political aspect, but there is all something very anthropological about being remembered about, you know, I matter, I care. When I'm no longer, people will remember me, right? It's not selfish at all. It's just part of how all societies function today. We value this. Um, so, yeah, remembrance does change. What we remember as well change. Um, you know, give it a 100 years and Mabo will be a very significant, I mean, it already is a significant moment in Australian national history, but it's not the most important day. Give it 100 years, I'm pretty sure that Australia Day on 26 January, that will change. That is becoming more and more offensive to many Australians. But it's a question of generation, right? Give it another 100 years, I don't think we will see the Union Jack on our flag, right? Because that doesn't represent us anymore. So as we change, or symbols or remembrance practices change, and there is nothing wrong with that. But the key point is to always do it respectfully and in collaboration with the different generation. If anyone is trying to impose something on someone else, then it doesn't work. It simply doesn't work because the people who are not interested will walk away. And that's the best way of forgetting. You need to have general broad popular support for something to really endure through time. And this is why Anzac Day uh, is a commemoration of everybody, allegedly, of course, uh, the idea being that, yes, there are different walls, different generation, but there is one notion of service for Australia. And recently, Anzac Day has been much more inclusive of Indigenous servicemen and women. Now, I know this is contested by some RSL, but these people, they, they, they're going to they're gonna lose that fight. There is no way they can remain that exclusive. 
Uh, Australia is a multicultural society, and the least it can do is to recognise the first people of this country. But there's still a way to go. I mean, if you think of the first war in Australia, it's not Sudan, it's not South Africa, it's not the First World War. It's the war of dispossession. Now, why is this war not represented at the Australian War Memorial? Well, because it's run by a pack of white dude who are 60, 70 and 80, and they are completely out of touch with the rest of the nation. It will change. They will lose that fight. There is no doubt. That's why as a historian, you know, I don't, I don't go and protest in the street because I know that time will simply do its work. The procession of ages won't stop. Yeah. <laughs> Mate, the old the old blokes that I mean, our, our I'm part of the RSL down here in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, and and a lot of the older fellas have left when the young blood came in because their ideas didn't align with theirs, and that was a problem. They they didn't want any any um, indigenous recognition in Anzac Day services, and I mean, I I, I don't I'm not a left leaning person. I don't want to get super pro- progressive on all topics, but some of them they're like you make they make sense. So we 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 need to. History needs to be fluid, um, given that we know for a fact that a lot of stuff was cut out of history by old men. And I, I don't want to get down, down in the weeds with this stuff, but um, Remembrance Day, just tying it back in. I mean, firstly, one, one thing you said then that I did want to bring up, um, I didn't want to cut you off though. When you said that the the idea of having remembrance, it, 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 makes, it gives people... Uh, the belief that they're going to be remembered if they get, do go and fight and die in war. I mean, I would I would argue heavily that that is all part of the propaganda campaign to to begin with. To say, I mean, it, it, that's that's the oldest religious myth in the, the history of humans is if we want people to to follow what we're telling them to do, if we want people to 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 listen to us in general, we need to give them a belief that they're going to be glorified in death. Um, and it works. I mean, I, as a 20-year-old, when I joined the military, I was like, if I'm going out in Afghan, I'm going out in a blaze of glory because I'm going down in history. Now I'd turn around and go, hey, mate, how about you just don't go there at all? Like, that's a far, that's a far better way to deal with it. Um, but, but back back to Remembrance Day, given given how things are changing every decade, um, where do you see Remembrance Day? If, if we don't reinvigorate it some way and we don't keep Australia interested, is it going to survive on, on the national calendar? It's hard to say. I think it's entrenched, but um, historian Jay Winter has talked about the shelf life of historical fact. So once people don't remember them, they simply disappear from, you know, general understanding of the past. So like everything else, it will have a shelf life. And the day it's no longer relevant, sadly, it will disappear. I'll, I'll tell you this little anecdote Um in 2009, I was in Verdun. <clears throat> Verdun is in France on the Western Front. You've got a cemetery, but you also have an ossuary. An ossuary is a place where bones are put together. After the fight, they didn't know who was a German and who was a French because all that hatred serves no purpose. Your bones are exactly the same. And they put together about 130,000 French and 120,000 German dead all together. And all these bones can still be seen if you visit Verdun. It's pretty harrowing. And anyway, I was there on Remembrance Day, and it's a huge cemetery. It's really somber. And there were about 250 people attending the service, which is absolutely nothing, knowing that out of these 250, 
there were 100 people army, 100 people police, and 25 state representatives. So essentially the state was paying tribute to the man who defended the state, but the people were nowhere to be seen. And I felt, you know, I had no connection with the men on the ground, for sure, under the ground, uh, even though, well, no, there are many people in my family who fought in the First World War. But I thought, Jesus, that's, it kind of, uh, it made me very sad because I thought, well, of course these men had no, no way of knowing how they would end up. And they had no way of knowing that the First World War would not be the last war. Um, but to think that they have been completely forgotten um, kind of hit home, you know, in a, in a, in a bizarre way. Um, not that I want to glorify everyone that served in the First World War in any war. Sometimes a lot of these wars are no good at all. Uh, you know, it's easy with World War II. Of course, fighting the Germans who are putting the Jews through an holocaust, yes, that's a good war. Yes, you need to stop that. But think of the First World War. What has it achieved? Very little. And that's why a lot of the veterans went pacifist after that because they were like, well, war is the old lie. So um, it's, 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 it's a difficult thing because if you are conscious of all this, then you're probably not going to go and fight. The, the lie does serve a purpose. Now, that sounds terribly cynical, um, but we do need people to protect countries, right? Like that's that's a very principle underlying why we still have armies, because there is a need for defence. Now, the problem is when the need for defence turns into the need to be aggressive. And, and that is often the border that, that we don't know where to put. You know, there were huge protests in Australia when John Howard wanted to go to Iraq. Uh, the French didn't go at the time. They say, well, look, there is no weapon of mass destruction and all you're going to do is to mess up the Middle East and it will be even worse. Well, fast forward 15 years later. Yeah, it's, it's a shit fight. It's, yeah. And no one can say that Saddam Hussein was, you know, a respectful figure. He was a terrible dictator. He killed hundreds of thousands of people. That's, that's an historical fact. But it's not easy to counterbalance with the war in Iraq, the civilian and military death, the destabilization of the Middle East, and then ISIS and Daesh. Like, that is an outcome of the dislocation of this state. So it's very clear why we engage in conflict. We, we give reasons, but we never master what's going to happen after. You know, sending troops somewhere, that's easy if you've got deployment capacity. But from the point you send troops, you lose control of what's going to happen. Of course, you've got war goals and objectives, but you're never sure you can secure those. And increasingly in the 20th century, it's become harder because of asymmetrical fighting. You know, two, com two countries fighting one another, we know how to sort that out, that the Western way of fighting. But when you are doing counterinsurgency, you've got to convince an entire people that you're trying to do something good. And that is way beyond, you know, guns and tanks. That's a whole thing that you need to conceptualize. So 
yeah, remembrance changed and remembrance evolved because conflict has changed and because we've got different understanding of what war means as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the spin that they put on it, so we go from a loss, uh, 25th of April 1915, uh, the Dardanelles, and then 25th of April 1918, victory of Villers Breton. Is Villers Breton in English? Sorry. What is it in French? Villers Bretonneux in French and Villers Bretonneux in Australian. Get a shardy. Um, yeah. Absolutely. But that, that again, that was. Um, see, and a lot of misinformation, what, wasn't it? What we need to understand is that, you know, commemorative centres, they don't pop up like this. There is a lot, there is a lot of Department of Veterans Affairs money behind it. And sometimes you think, you know, at the moment they're putting 500 million, half a billion dollar in extending the War Memorial, which is already one of the largest museums this country has. I would much rather see half of that money or most of that money go to veterans' organization or their family. But, <laughs> but it's like, no, no, we need to have that big Anzac legend, even bigger. Well, People have moved away from that and you're going to spend money and people are not going to come. And I know this because the John Manashanta at Villa Bretano was supposed to greet at least 100,000 Australians a year and tell the Australian story of... It, it, I think the first year it got to 42,000 visitors or something like that. Like the, 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 the people in charge sometime of these commemorations are trying to impose an agenda that is not reflective of what everyday Australians want. And that's a problem. But what you were referring to, um, you know, 20, 30 years ago, Gallipoli was all the rage. And then we turned toward the Western Front. Um, and so now there are a lot more Australians who go and visit the Western Front um, because we finally understand that Gallipoli wasn't a victory. It didn't work out well in the end. And so John Howard spent millions and millions and millions of dollars to develop commemorative sites on the Western Front so he could, you know, encourage Australians to move away from the defeat in Gallipoli and go celebrate victory <laughs> on the Western Front, right? So, you know, you, and, and we can understand that. I mean, his, his dad and granddad fought in the First World War. One of them fought at Villa Breton as well. So there is politics, but there is personal history as well. And when you know history, that's when you can't be manipulated because you can go back to the fact and say, hang on, hang on. You're not doing this out of, you know, good spirit or whatever. Like you've got a very specific goal that you want to achieve in relation to maybe your electorate or something like that, right? So, and again, that that can apply to different spectrum on the political agenda. I'm not saying it's one party. Yeah, uh, the, the propaganda machine, when we go, the German spring offensive uh, wasn't, well, I mean, from the limited sources I've read, wasn't stopped per se as it literally overran its supply lines. And that was what the first Villers Breton, yeah. uh, and and also not just there, but across the whole front. That's the bit, next big thing. We didn't stop the German advance, and the Australians didn't do it there. It was across a whole front, 
with all of the different, you know, uh, Commonwealth forces, you know, uh, and but we just sort of spun it up and said, no, 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 we stopped the Germans and, and Australia saved France. and Which is absolute nonsense. I think part of the problem is that the old guard of historians in Australia does not speak foreign languages. And so they write the history of Australia in the First World War with only Australian and British archives. And you go, mate, it's a world war. You need to check what's going on in Germany, in France. And, you know, yeah, we turn the France single-handedly. Do you know what's the proportion of Australian soldiers in the entire First World War? 75 million people fought in the First World War. Australian troops represented less than 0.6%, not even a percent, 0.6%, right? So while it is an enormous contribution for a country of less than 5 million, if you put it in perspective of a world war, it's not even a per 1%, right? Now, you can talk about, you know, this less than 1% did great achievement. Yeah, but of course, like that's the point of any commemoration, the Germans are going to say we did well here. The French are going to say we did well there. There's nothing exceptional about that. Um, but the bottom line is that there is an understanding in Australia that Australia saved Europe. 99.9% of the French have never heard that Australians fought in the First World War because it's, it's just, it's a small, you know, it's a very small contingent. And... There are dozens, literally dozens of nations that fought in France during the First World War. Eight million soldiers of the French army served. 1.2, sorry, 1.4 million died. Um, so we're like, yes, thanks for your contribution. It helped. You provided five divisions. The French army provided 110. The Americans, I think, 75. The British, 68. The Italians, 60. It's just, and Australia didn't finish the war, by the way, because uh, there were not enough recruitment coming through to maintain all five divisions. So in October 1918, they were pulled out of the line to be arrested uh, to get reinforcement in. Uh, so it's, you know, when you look at history, it tells you a bit of a different story. And, of course, it's a story that can be challenging because people don't want to hear about this. But I think it's much more it's much better to be honest and be truthful than telling yourself stories. Why? Because telling yourself stories build that unrealistic expectation that you're going to be fine. And that has really big consequences. Because if Australians think that they can take the German army on their own, or Indonesia or China or which other country, you are deluded. You know, at the moment, Australia has no aircraft carrier. It's got no nuclear defense capacity. It's, I mean, I could go on. It, perhaps it would be insulting. But part of the Anzac legend is also there to make us think that we are strong. But in reality, militarily speaking, for a lot of deployment, we rely on infrastructure provided by the United States. Absolutely. Yep. And, and I mean, that trans-operation ability is great but it also means that we lose a degree of sovereignty. So to me, we should focus less on the Anzac legend and more about how can we do things on our own, right? Because 
you know, I get worried about that new submarine deals. Australia has no nuclear engineer, and it means that you're going to get American staff in the submarines. There is no other way. Uh, my father-in-law worked in nuclear submarines for a long time in France, and I asked him, you know, like, how are they going to operate this? And he said, well, in the nuclear reactor itself, well, you can have mechanics, doesn't matter where nationality they are, but you do need nuclear engineers. And at the moment, we don't have those. Or maybe I'm not aware, but I doubt it, right? So we, I think there are a lot of weapon systems that we should actually bite the bullet and develop it ourselves because that gives us independence. And when you are independent in terms of operation ability, then you can decide where you go and where you don't go and the circumstances in which you go. Um, and, yeah, that's, I mean, that's another debate, but it's, it's all related in a way. Mate, I um, just uh, a few of the things you said there like, resonate. I, I remember having a conversation when I was, uh, uh, oh, who knows what it was, it was with an American soldier, and we were talking about World War One and Two, and he was like, oh, were, were, your lads, were your lads in that one too, were they? And I'm like, yeah. And in my mind, I'm sitting there going, yeah, I'm pretty sure we won it for you. <laughs> like, no, no, it's 0.06%, right? mate. <laughs> and it's the same deal. Like, I grew up I grew up reading books um, predominantly about the Australian SAS uh, and, and people talking about if anyone ever invaded Australia. And I, I was of the perception that, like, no, we've got the best soldiers in the world. We can never be invaded. And then I joined the military. No, the SAS are pretty, pretty hard dudes, but there's only 200 of them. <laughs> They're not going to protect the country if someone invades. Like, yeah, they'll do some damage to a few insurgent groups, but they're not protecting the entire country. Um, so you're, you're talking like a, a bloke who has analysed and can actually history predict where we're going to head and the way politicians are acting. Is, is that something that we can do? Can can we learn enough from history to go, I can make a fairly safe assumption given the politicians we've got in power at the moment and the way they're heading the next 10 years, we're either going to be China's bitch or we're going to be America's puppet against China. Is that something that we can start to determine through through looking at history books? Well, I've got to be mindful because uh, we're being recorded. So yeah. whoever, whoever wins in 10 years, I better be on the right side. Now, um, look, all jokes aside, that, that's, that's a problem of many historians. It's like, but look at the facts, look at the books, like, please. But that's not how we work. We, we, we are in the present and we think we know better and we think we're going to do better. And oftentimes we just fuck up in a different way, but a way that is kind of consistent with what has happened in the past, right? And that is so frustrating because instead of accumulating knowledge and thinking about this, um, we... We forget. One of the best, funnily enough, uh, ironically enough, one of the best um, uh, operational use of history used to be made by armies, you know, riding such battle and such battle by such generals. The point was for other future generals to be able to go, okay, where do I put my left wing and where do I put... Military strategy was extremely reliant on history. Uh, in the past, like that was super important. But today I feel that we have turned toward a use of history that is more about telling stories we want to hear about ourselves 
as opposed to thinking really hard about what it is that we want to do. And I'll go back to that example of submarine because this is one clear instance where we haven't learned. Haven't learned. Uh, Australia has operated submarines since World War One, right? Often there weren't all submarines, but we had Australian men in charge of operating those. After World War II, there is a little flotilla of, of British subs that stay in Australia until the early 60s. And the British say, look, we're going to go, so you better get your own. And Australia goes, well, we don't really know how to make those, so how about we buy them from Scotland? Yeah, that's the Oberon-class submarines. We get them, and then, of course, they've got a lifespan. What do we do? We get Swedish engineered submarines have built in Australia. It, it's a lot of issues. It takes a lot of time. They're delivered late. These are the Colin class They probably come flat-packed as well. Um, and, and then you fast-forward a third time 20 years later, we're going to get our submarines from Japan or from Germany, and then France wins the deal, Right. And then we're not going to get the French subs. We're going to get the, the, I mean, I would like to see Australia building its own stuff. It's going to cost three times more. I acknowledge that. I know it's a huge cost for a 26 million people country. But it means sovereignty. It means training in Australia. It means more education because you need to know a lot of stuff in order to make operational submarines. Uh, and in that way, I think I'm much more Australian than the Prime Minister himself, because I do believe that Australia has the brain and the capacity, if it wants to put its mouth where its, uh, its money where its mouth is, to do it. We don't need to be subservient to the Americans or subservient to whoever else. I think we need to think hard and do that on our own. And of course, that's going to mean perhaps paying a bit more taxes. But if a bit more taxes means independence, I'll put my money on the table. The problem with these deals is that um, we then get drawn into other people conflict. I don't think it's a good idea to antagonize China. Of course, of course, you know, we know where we stand. America is democracy. America, we've got shared values. I'm not saying, you know, we stand between the two of them. We know who our ally is, but we don't need to play within their games because that's exposing Australia unnecessarily. If we upset the one of the largest military nation and we don't even have first strike or second strike military um, nuclear capacity, we stand zero chance, zero chance. So... You know, as, as a historian, I can tell you that there are mistakes we can learn to fix, but that comes with a lot of political will and thinking of 20, 30, 40 years plan, which it seems we are no longer able to do. And that's a problem because we are operating in a geopolitical world where you've got nations who think 20, 30, 40 years time. And here we think, oh, when's the next election? And that is not serving the greater good. And the greater good is sovereign Australia. That is, that is the greater good. And sovereign Australia can be liberal, can be Labour, can be Green. I don't care, providing decisions are made here. 
I'm not sure. I, I can't agree that it can be green, but I do agree with the statement as a whole. So in the a nutshell. Making, the point that I was making is that, you know, we need a vibrant, healthy democracy where Australians are able to share views, providing they are evidence and documented, regardless of their political party. I'd much rather that than decisions being taken in Washington or as they were in the past in London. So are you, in a nutshell, are you saying we need a politician who can make Australia great again? (laughs) (laughs) You've tricked me. You know, know, what is interesting, though, in, in, in Australia, so if you look at Australia's political tradition, the true nationalist, in a way, are often left-leaning, like Billy Hughes, for instance, or Paul Keating. I mean, I don't know whether you tuned in, tuned in to Paul's kidding stuff during the submarine deal, but he was saying really hard stuff going, well, you know, we're just going to be at the bootstrap of America like we wear the bootstrap of Britain. It's time to think hard of ourselves. So I think these people exist, but I don't see them in the current political spectrum. It's always interesting to see, like, soldiers in Germany and, and, and French soldiers and that coming out of trenches and, and uh, playing soccer and, you know, Turks throwing cans of bully beef and swapping them for um, and cigarettes and stuff like that. It's never the soldiers and the common man that have a problem with the person. It's, it's the political disassociation between what is going on. Like, I'm pretty sure there's no one in China that is working, going to a job is like, fuck those Australians. Let's go and invade them. Like, no, nobody. Zero, I think zero people. And I'm pretty sure vice Vicky Versa, do you know what I mean? Um, and then you get this, yeah, everyone start the politicaling and the, and the manoeuvrings at, at that level. Oh, fuck. Yeah, no, that, that's why I think cultural relationships and not being afraid of one another um, is important. It's, it's difficult, though, because it doesn't always align with with political agendas. And I think that's why it's very important to have highly educated, critical citizens. These are the healthiest nation. And we have to remember, and that perhaps is uh, uh, hope, really, the big wars have been won by democracies. The First World War is won by the French and British liberal democratic parliaments, America as well, right? Autocratic Germany did not win. Autocratic Ottoman Empire did not win. World War II, autocratic dictatorial Nazi Germany did not win. Now, you could argue that Uncle Joseph in Moscow was part of the winner, but ultimately, that's not a model that won either. So providing we remain on the top of a game with, you know, educated, critical uh, citizen that know how to do stuff. I mean, think of the Manhattan Project and the construction of the, of the nuclear, the atomic bomb. Like the brains you need to do this is phenomenal. So to me, the key is, you know, whatever investment you make at the Australian War Memorial, whatever submarines you are buying, providing you enable Australians to get an education, uh, strong university sector, strong school sector, whether it's for TAFE or university, that is what I'd like to see. Yeah, I, <laughs> I think, and I'm still amazed. Uh, 
the lack of information, I was talking to my mate today um, and I'm just amazed to see the lack of information between that was flowing between America and Germany and, and between Australia and, and the rest of the world. I mean, there's very limited amounts of information and resources. So if you were going to alienate and vilify a particular race of people, you know, to make them the bad guys, it's easier back in 1918 because there's like three newspapers and not even a television program, right? And you just put in, oh, Germans are bad and they're doing this. Cool. Um, I'm just amazed now that we're still falling for the same traps but on a completely other spectrum. So m misinformation, fake news and... Yeah, it is, it is a plague. It is a plague and one that we have to be constantly vigilant about. I think that's the same idea than the army, as in the Department of Defence. It's defence. It's there to be vigilant in case you need it. But we need to be vigilant for democracy as well. Um, and oftentimes it's easier to just go, oh, let's forget that, go to the beach, you know, have a barbecue. And yeah, sure, that's great. But in order to do this freely, you need to think hard. So, you know, we, we went all political here because history is politics. It's the politics of the past. And that can tell us a lot of things about today and perhaps where we might go. It's not a bit like a cliche, but it is very important to know what we've done in the past and how we've done it in order to identify what worked and what didn't work and how, how we can improve. So commemoration serves a purpose. It serves a purpose of, you know, remembering, paying tribute, getting together, having fun, creating community. But it, it should also serve the purpose of asking ourselves big questions because we, we need that if we want to stay at the top of the game. Mate, absolutely. Hey, I just want to say uh, a quick thank you for coming on and opening up uh, my eyes and, and, and really shedding some light into some of the issues that we're sort of battling with. And if you are listening to this, uh, go and get a copy of Our Corner of the Somme. It, is, it will challenge your perspective and the narrative you've been taught, but it's a bloody good read uh, and it's going to open your eyes. Um, mate, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, have you got anything coming up uh, that people need to have a look at? Uh Academic articles, but I don't recommend this because that'd be a bit boring. Uh, but yeah, look, O'Connor of the Psalm is is a really good book, um, and uh, it's based on evidence. You know, that's all I can say. There is nothing good that comes out of telling mythical stories of oneself. It makes us feel good, but it also mislead us in very real ways. So, truth telling. I know that it's a fashionable term at the moment, but truth-telling is very important because just like in battle, you need to make assessment on what is real. You know, how many men, how many munitions, what do they have, location. Not, yeah, I'm tall, bronze and super strong, I'm going to win. Doesn't really work. So thank you very much for having me on the show and if any of your listener wants to engage, you know, Roman Faithy, Google me, I've got a public university profile, an email address. I'm always happy to reply to positive or negative emails and engage. Like, that's that's what we are here for, right? Mate, absolutely. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks, mate.